they can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me. All I'm looking for in deposition of the defendant is what it is I want to start my case with. It isn't about your war with that lawyer. It's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Welcome back. Uh, today's guest is uh, Judge Luis Calderon, who is a judge in the Ninth Circuit, and he gave a great interview. He went to Georgetown Law School and shares what it was like to kind of grow up with parents who immigrated here, uh, how he got led to the practice of law, and uh, ultimately he really took an interesting path where he left working for a big D.C. law firm to go be a public defender and uh, and then work through private criminal defense and ultimately is on the bench. Uh, I think he offers a lot of really helpful perspective on kind of what jurors want to how jurors see expert witnesses and candidly how witnesses kind of implode. He shares that as well. I think you're going to enjoy it. Have fun. It is my uh, pleasure to be sitting here in the Orange County Courthouse with uh, Judge Calderon. Welcome. Thank you. I, you know, where I'd love to start is your parents and their story a little bit and how it shaped you and who you've become. All right. So both my parents are medical doctors. Um, my mom's from Panama. My dad's from Nicaragua. They're both from very small towns. Ironically, um, they both were very good students and they both earned scholarships to medical school in Brazil. And my father was kind of a, a, a prodigy in a sense that he graduated high school at the age of 17 wow. and started medical school immediately thereafter. So he graduated medical school around the age of 22 and he did so well that they kept him on as a professor. So he actually, he's a year older than my mother and he actually was one of her professors when she started. So that's how they met. Um, my, my brother was uh, born shortly after they were married um, in Brazil. Um, and then we moved, our family, I wasn't born yet, moved back to Nicaragua in about 1978, which was right before the revolution, the, the, the Sandinista takeover of Nicaragua. So, Prior to my being born, a uh, revolution had broke out. Uh, airports were closing. There were very few ways out of the country. Uh, my dad was uh, very high regarded in, in uh, the medical community, as was my mother. But my back in those days, there wasn't a lot of private medical care. Yes. He worked for the government. Okay. And so he was highly regarded. There was an incident where he had to fly out to a certain part. People were shooting and one of the helicopter pilots was shot right in front of him and he said, we're out of here. So literally that evening, we got, he got home, he packed up uh, my family's things, they escaped to Panama. I was born maybe three months after that and we lived there for a few months and my parents decided that maybe the U.S. was uh, the best opportunity for our family to grow you know, they had their degrees, they were doctors, and they felt like here they could get a fresh start. And so we moved here when I was about six months old. 
And, you know, they worked really hard because to become a doctor in the United States, they had to take certain board exams. They had to learn English. They had to take an English proficiency exam. When, when they first moved here, were they, did they speak English? No, they actually okay. spoke fluent Portuguese and fluent Spanish because they had learned Portuguese because in Brazil, all the subjects were taught in Portuguese. Okay. You know, they thought, we learn Portuguese, we can learn English. It was harder than they thought, um, but they struggled to it. And for a very long time, you know, the only employment that they could see, because they were only recognized uh, to be able to do like PA work, physician assistant type yes. work, was in the correctional system. Um, and so they did that for years until they could get, uh, you know, recognized as medical doctors. Um, so for many years, you know, they struggled, and but they worked and they, always maintained in us that idea that, you know, your education, what you learn, nobody can ever take away from you. Like, nobody can take away the fact that you earned this degree because the knowledge is there. And no matter what, they, you know, science is science, math is math. Maybe you need to learn the language, but you, you'll always have that knowledge and nobody can take it away from you. So they always really pushed my brother and I to excel in school, um, to really care about your, um, uh, reputation, but also to be kind to the people because you never know what circumstances in your life are going to flip your world around. You think you're at the top of the world, that flips and now you're on the bottom. So, so true. treat everybody, you know, like a human being. Never think you're better than someone because you hold a title. So, so education is important, the degrees are important, but just the mere fact that you have one or have a title doesn't make you better than someone at the bottom. And they always really, really push that because we live that experience. Yeah, and clearly they uh, achieved, in, at least in you, I'm sure your, your brother as well, the importance of education when I, I track how well you did at Florida and then you go to Georgetown Law School. So uh, it clearly wasn't just words that translated into your life. Absolutely. I mean, you know, my brother was at the top of his class. Um, he was, he started, uh, at Miami-Dade and you know, he went to UF, graduated from UF, went to pharmacy school UF, was at the top of his class, of his pharmacy class. So um, absolutely, you know, my, my brother's, you know, taught at uh, university as a professor at South Carolina pharmacology, assistant professor of pharmacology. So, I mean, education was paramount. I mean, there, there was no, there was no excuse not to do well in school. It, it feels like that's such like the, uh, a consistent strand through uh, a lot of uh, people who immigrated into the United States. The value of education is just, we take it so much for granted, a lot of people that just grew up here. But I, I've seen families where there's been immigration and they've come in here, they just, they really stress uh, education as being uh, a pathway to security. And not just that, I mean, I think in a lot of countries, it's a privilege. So graduating at the top of your class means you get to go to school when you come from humble beginnings. You know, my uh, grandfather was a taxi driver. My, my grandmother owned a store. My other grandfather was an engineer. Uh, my grandmother was a stay-at-home mom. So these were not people who had the money to be able to afford to send their kids to medical school or college. It was things that you had to earn a scholarship in order to, to do that. So it's always been seen as a privilege. And the idea that something else takes priority to your education is, it doesn't exist. You know, I had to 
prove to my parents that I would be allowed to compete in sports to be able to do sports. If one letter grade dropped, that was it. That sport was done. Well, I, I will tell you, uh, clearly you, you have something in the intellectual genes with both of your parents, uh, doctors, your brother, a, a pharmacist, and, and your path. Um, why law? You know, I, I don't know what it is uh, that ever spawned that interest. I don't know what it was, but as long as I can remember, I've always had it. And I, there's a few things that I think, because I think back to like, why did I get bit by the law bug so young? And I mean, I was really young. I think part of it, both my godparents were lawyers in Nicaragua. Um, and when they came here, that didn't translate into anything. Um, they, you know, they worked in restaurants, you know, I mean, waiting tables, you know, busing tables, cooking in the kitchen, you know, restaurants, and they were well-regarded lawyers. And I think, you know, it was kind of like the fulfillment of a career that never, that they never had. Okay. I think that's, that's a small part of it. I think a bigger part of it is I can remember being very, very young. And I mean, like one of my earliest memories is just sitting with my dad. <clears throat> he barely knew English. You know, I was barely talking but we would watch Perry Mason together, the black and white version, Raymond Burr. And you know, there would always be that he moment. He was good. He was great. But there'd always be that moment at the end where you know, that surprise witness would bust through the uh, courtroom doors, everybody would gasp, do the turn. And I just remember that was one of the memories that we shared, you know, my dad worked nights. So me being in preschool at that point, um, you know, the mornings were something we had because my brother would already be at school and it was just me and him. And that's what we'd do. We'd watch that. We'd watch The Price is Right. Thankfully, I didn't want to become a game show host, although sometimes you feel like you are in this job. Um, but, you know, I, I, and so that was, that was another piece of it. My parents say this story. I don't remember it. But they said to me, they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was in grade school and I said, I want to be a judge. Wow. Right. And they're like, well, you know, you have to be a lawyer first. And I was like, yeah, no, I just want to be a judge. <laughs> I'm going to so, skip the lawyer right. part and go right to the judge part. I like the robe, and, you know. But, you know, everybody's watching Perry Mason. I'm watching the judge, apparently. And I just thought that's, that's what I'm going to do. That is cool. So, so, you know, I don't know if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or whatever it is. But I, I know that as long as I can remember I wanted to do this, you know, being in high school, I questioned myself because I'd, I'd done well in a lot of subjects and I said, you know, what do you want to do? And I just, I had such an interest in, in business and finance and we, you know, I'd taken a class in high school um, where it was uh, like, a, like a business and statistics class and I, and I just, you know, the stock market always intrigued me. So when I went to UF, I, I kind of fooled myself into thinking I'm going to do, you know, finance degree, I'm, I'm going to be on, you know, a market analyst or I'm going to work on Wall Street, I'm going to do this. And I did really, really well. And then I took this business ethics class um, with uh, Professor David Hoke. I'll never forget it because it really changed the, the trajectory of what I was going to do. And he taught at the law school. And so when I'd write these papers, which was one of the few classes that I had to write papers for, he's like, what is with the business thing? Like, you need to go to law school. Like, you think like a lawyer, you have a way with words. and I said, you know, I, I kind of put that dream aside. I kind of, you know, lost track of that. Yes. And then as soon as he said it, like, it just kind of came together. And so I, you know, I went to my other professors, you know, I was doing a, uh, 
uh, an honors program, so I was doing an honors thesis, and um, I talked to my, my, my faculty advisor, because I'm like, listen, I, you know, I'm thinking about taking the LSAC, and you write a letter of recommendation for me. He's like, I don't want you to do that. Like, you're too good at this to waste your time in law school. Like, you know, you're gonna you know, get in more debt, and you, you know, you're gonna make a killing if you go. My equity professor, um, who the, was the other professor I wanted to write, a recommendation for me. He said, absolutely not. He's like, I will offer you a job right now. He was, he had a hedge fund in Tampa. He's like, I will hire you right now. He's like, please don't do this. So I'm like, I must be onto something because nobody wants when me to do this. When the resistance is that much, the odds are you're either completely wrong or completely right. Well, in my mind, I was thinking the fact that I still want to do this means I really want to yes. do it because nobody can talk me out of it. I think a lot of people would have been like, bird in the hand. I, I convinced myself, well, you know what? Look, I'm going to split the baby. I'm gonna to go to law school and I'm gonna do some type of business law. Some type of business law. Mind you, the only class I ever got anything less than an A in was business law at UF. I got a B plus. But I convinced myself that I was gonna do business law. So when I went to Georgetown, you know, after you do your first year, um, you know, I decided I'm gonna take securities law and I'm gonna take uh, corporations and I'm gonna take, you know, all these, securities litigation, tax law, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do a business type track. And I also took an economic justice seminar. So again, this whole idea of ethics kind of rears its ugly head on my nice, straight, you know, business career path. And um, the professor who taught it, Emma Coleman Jordan, uh, ended up asking me to be a TA slash RA. Um, she offered, to let me actually teach some of the classes and interact with the students who are only a year younger than I was. So this is a great opportunity. Plus I love the subject matter. And this was a seminar. So again, we wrote a paper. She's like, I like the way you think. I like the way you write. This is great stuff. And my whole, the whole premise of my thesis was on the economic factors uh, that deal with accent discrimination. So, or, and, and the ability to be bilingual. So. Um, you have this uh, ability to speak multiple languages, which has a value in the marketplace because you, you talk clearly, about clearly, clearly, yeah, you know, border towns, factories. How does the manager communicate with the working staff if they if they're not bilingual? Yet, or not? I'm sorry, non-Spanish speaking managers are paid the exact same as bilingual managers. In essence, you know what what you're doing is you're saying. You know, if you put, if you assign a money value to a trait, what is that value? And that will tell you what that trait is worth in society. Makes so sense. If you're a, a banker and you make a certain amount of commission, it's because you earned a certain book of business. So there, there's a direct translation. So what you're saying is there's no value to that. So she's like that, you know, that's a very concise theory with regards to accent, um, people who, like my parents who came from other countries, uh, doc, foreign doctors make less money than domestic doctors. It translates, and there's this idea that because you speak with an accent that you're less educated or less informed or don't know what you're talking about, and that's something that we do as a society. I, I kind of got off on a tangent, but the point is that again, this idea of there's good to be done you know, with regards to what I'm doing with my degree. And going out there and, you know, earning money and, and kind of um, working at a certain law firm is just like a way of thinking 
like, you know, you're kind of like herded into these, you know, you get a, a good grade in, in, in high school, you go to honors class, you do an honors class, you graduate at the top of your class, you graduate at the top of your class, you're supposed to go to a good college. If you do well at a good college, you're supposed to go to a good graduate school. You know, with law school, if you do well in law school, you're supposed to go to you, a top law firm. You get a job like at Williams and Connolly. Right. Like you did. Right. <laughs> but ultimately, I mean, and that's the reality of the question is that's what you end up being trained to think. So once I took that seminar, once I helped my professor with that seminar, worked for that professor, it just kind of opened my mind to maybe, maybe um, working in, in, in a finance or security type law firm, transactional type law firm, isn't my true calling, isn't where I want to be. But again, you know, you think about security, you think about stability, you think about risk, and then you have this debt hanging over your head. Yes. Um, and so the real practicalities of life catch up with you. So when I graduated law school, I, I took a job with Williams and Connolly. You know, you, as all firms, you know, you, you do grunt work. And, and, you know, I was at a, a CLE with uh, a colleague of mine um, and, a, and a friend. And he's made a comment. He's like, you know, Judge Calderon worked at Williams and Connolly. And, you know, some of the people who worked at the law firm, you know, and he mentions a few Supreme Court justices, and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I picked up their coffee and uh, <laughs> brought them their, their dry cleaning one day. But, you know, you really do a lot of the base work. And so for me, and I think this is, you know, more prevalent in what you're seeing with millennials who have debt and they kind of make these um decisions to take certain jobs it's not their dream job i think everybody has like a dream job and they're like listen I'm, I'm gonna do what i need to do to pay my rent to be able to to survive is you end up waking up just dreading the day that's about to start yeah and almost it seems like people that do those jobs just for financial reasons they don't advance further than they would if they actually followed what they're passionate about absolutely i mean i think when you wake up in the morning and you're ready to go and you're just happy about it. And, and I'll tell you what, a good friend of mine, one of my roommates in law school, that's what he did. And he loves his job. He works an insane amount of hours. He's a partner at his firm now, but he loves it. And that's great. He couldn't do what I do for a week and I couldn't do what he does for a week. Yes. And that's what makes us all different and that's what makes us great. But I, but I think you're right. I think there's something to it is if, that if you wake up with that sense of dread and that feeling like I can't do another day, you need to find something else. Life so is, is that what short. leads you to, to leave a, a big firm job in DC to come and work with the public defender's office in central Florida? That's part of it. Okay. That's a, a big part of it. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that the other part of it was that Perry Mason episode, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, that idea of being in the courtroom of doing trial work, you know, being at the at the big firm, it does one great thing for you is if you don't buy into the lifestyle, you know, if you with your first check, you don't go rent that big apartment, buy that new car. It's DC, you know, you don't need a car. But the reality is if you save that money up. So for me, it was taking care of private loans, making sure that I had a, a loan payment that would give me the freedom to be able to do something else, that I wasn't a slave to to the law school debt, the dreaded law school debt, which a lot of people are. Yes. 
Um, so I lived like a law student while I worked at the firm. I had a roommate. Save some cash. Save some cash and then um, took care of my, of my private loans. So I had that idea of like, now I can do whatever I want. So what do I want to do? Because uh, I knew it had to happen. So I looked at working at the Federal Defender Service in D.C. And it just felt like it wasn't for me. It wasn't a community that I was connected to. It didn't feel like a place that I was going to be there for long. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, of course. You know, um, D.C. is a very transient city. You get people from all over the place. And it just... It just didn't seem like if you helped one person that you're helping the community, you're helping this one individual. And I wanted to have a bigger impact. Um, at the time that I was looking, my brother um, was living here in Orlando. Um, he's since moved to Tampa. I feel like he's trying to get away from me, but. Um, you chase him on the next right, job. Right. No, but he, you know, he was here and him and his wife were expecting. And I didn't want to be those one of those Thanksgiving, Christmas Easter uncles, you know, you see them three times a year and that's it. My brother and I are very close and I wanted to make sure that, you know, I was a part of, you know, my, my niece's life. So that was part of it. Um, you know, there was, when I came in and interviewed, um, Bob Wesley, who's still the public defender here, um, basically told me the job was mine. Now, and then he sent me, you know, he introduced himself. He's like, job is basically yours. Um, now here's, go do your interview. And I was like, uh, I'm confused. Why am I interviewing if you just offered me the job? And I think it was just for, you know, me to, to really, I don't know if he, because he's kind of a jokester, so I don't know if he was just messing with me or if he was, if he was serious. So I was like, let me not take any chances. Let me just treat the interview process, not that I wouldn't have, but just treat the interview process with the utmost uh, formality. Yeah, I, I've seen in some of those situations, like where I've interviewed someone as the first interview, and I know we're going to make an offer to the person. I, I like the other interviews because I want them to decide: is this the tribe that I want to be a part of? Right. And 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 meaning, I know they would fit in, but then they need to decide: is this a tribe I want? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's a and it's a cultural question too. I mean, it's like. Do I like the environment? Do I like the culture? Is this a place where I'm going to be able to thrive? Um, and I think, you know, with a law firm um, setting, there's a, a real big tendency to kind of have a fear of the associate failing. And understandably, it's not, there's no economic stake for that young attorney in the, in the litigation. And so obviously the, the firm wants to make sure that it's a profitable endeavor, that it's not lost in some motion. And I, and I think that's why your state attorney's office and your, public and your public defender offices are such an invaluable instrument to getting trial experience. Yes. Because it kind of removes that fear of failure. It's, it's autonomy with mentorship. Um, it's, but it's letting you fall on your face because that's what's gonna, that really- It's going I mean, to happen. It's so embarrassing to mess up in jury selection when you're a young lawyer. It's, it's, it just is. And so, but you only do it once. Hopefully you only do it once. And then you learn, never making that mistake again. It's ingrained in your memory. It's, you know, it's etched in there in a way that somebody telling you about it isn't going to be. Um, and so I think that that's an invaluable tool that you get by, by being able to work in that setting. 
uh, the autonomy to know that this person is counting on you. Your opinion to them is what's going to really push them in one direction or another. The stakes could be very high. They could be very low. Um, to me, I never discounted what penalties meant to that individual. I think, you know, sometimes you think, oh, well, it's just a couple of days in jail. Single mom, mother yeah, of sure. three. Already, it can change uh, the entire course of their family. It can send them into a complete yes. tailspin. Let, let, let me, uh, this, this is so not linear, but I was sitting there thinking of life as a public defender, and I know you did private criminal practice as well, and federal and state. It seems like one of the keys to being a public defender is how you interact in a courtroom with the police officer because the police are kind of making the case and you, it would seem like you're spending a lot of time cross-examining law enforcement. Um, I would love any insight you have because um, many of us, even in civil practice, we interact with law enforcement in the courtroom uh, on both sides. Um, what insight would you have on how to effectively interact with law enforcement in a courtroom? So number one, um, respect. Uh, but again, you know, it's not deference. There's a big difference between deference and respect. I think respect means being courteous, um, uh, engaging, not being accusatory. Um, and so, you know, the one thing, and I will tell you, because I think about this in a, in a, in a, in a multitude of settings. I think about it at the deposition stage, where I'm asking a person serious questions, if they're snarky to me, I let it go. But I know this is this person's demeanor, this is the, per this is the way they're gonna come across. So I know that, I put that in my pocket. If they're snarky to me in the depot, they're gonna be snarky to me on the stand. So now that's a flaw in their character that I can expose in the presence of the jury. Um, if they're respectful, if they're matter of fact, if they give me exactly what I would expect to, them to give me, then it's a very plain, you know, um, black and white depot. It's going to be a black and white examination. I, I don't need them to say, to give me their opinions on things. I need them, them to give me some facts. And if I can get them to establish certain facts, then I know, you know, what objectives I can cross off my list with regards to getting my client to a favorable verdict. Um, you know, when they met, so they either did a good investigation, so they either did certain things or they didn't do certain things. So was the investigation complete? Did they do something? The attitude aspect of it, that's something that can be exploited, just like with any witness. And you, and, and you know, but I don't, I don't try to antagonize anybody in any deposition. I don't antagonize victims. I don't antagonize witnesses. I definitely don't want to antagonize the police officers, they have a very dangerous job. And the inclusion of every deposition, whether they're rude to me, nice to me, whatever, I always ask them, you know, or tell them to be safe. And so whenever I saw an officer at a trial, whatever, it was always like, you would think I was the prosecutor because of the way that they would interact with me. But they knew, you know, once we're in trial- And I bet it trial, was helpful in terms of uh, your credibility with the jury, as well as your credibility with the witness. Absolutely. Absolutely, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if something happened at my house, 
I'm going to call them. I yes. want them to come. And if you if you develop this me us against them or me against them mentality as a whole and not as an individual, I think you're 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 labeling people just based on what they do for a living. So if you're not you're not taking the person as an individual. You can say that guy's a jerk, that individual's a jerk, and I bet you at least in my experience with the officers, I actually had other officers apologize for their colleagues' behavior. We all know who the jerks are within our profession, and none of us want to be judged by the worst of the people in our profession. And so I never try to do that. But to the extent of it, that it's awkward, look, in front of a jury, it's not very palatable for you right off the bat to just go after somebody yes. without reason. The jury's going to hate it, and they're going to hate you for it. Um, so the best thing is to be deferential, you know, when they're when being snarky to create that contrast if you're just basically both in the middle fact question fact question fact question everybody's gonna be like okay well we got some good information out of that if it's you know if they're trying to overreach and they're being snarky about it that's when you kind of pull back and say i'm sorry i, I thought the question was very simple i guess maybe i misunderstood oh maybe you did and you're like you know you're surprised by their by their aggression towards you and you're just kind of looking at the jury and they're like what is wrong with that guy? You know, he's just asking him a question. Same thing with, uh, you know, complaining witnesses, with victims, whatever the case may be. It's an exchange and it's a show for the jury. And so if you're not aware that the jury's watching every little thing, every inflection, every response, every body movement, and uh, if you're giving respect and not getting it back, that's very distasteful to the juries, not only with witnesses, but with the judge and with your fellow attorney. I know for a fact I always had a great working relationship with the state attorneys that were assigned to my divisions, with the state attorneys who weren't assigned to my divisions. You know, we'd go to trial, we'd lose, we'd go out, we'd grab a drink, we'd talk about it, I'd lose, you know, they're paying, they lose, I'm paying, it's, it's a tit for tat. We're in the courtroom way too much um, not to have it be that way. And those prosecutors, I was like, okay, well, this is going to be an email relationship. You know, this is the person where everything that I'm going to discuss with them is going to have to be done through email because clearly um, this person's just being nasty to me and I, I don't deserve that, that uh, level of disrespect. I haven't done anything to, to do it. Um, so that's when you kind of like are like, I'm not going to engage yes. uh, because there's nothing productive is going to come from that. So you, you do your job, you don't engage, and then you just talk to the court. Let, let the other the, person do the gestures and the, and the pointing. And so, so now that you're a judge mm -hmm. and you see, I'm sure, uh, you referee uh, fights that are, you know, the meaningless discovery fights where lawyers are attacking each other like that. Um, the, the fear that litigants often have or advocates often have is, is the judge getting it? If, if I'm silent, or I'm calm and they're bombastic, is a judge understanding that I'm not tacitly admitting to anything they're saying. That that's usually the concern that at least I have sometimes is I'm I'm concerned that if I'm just calm and silent, that somehow it gives credence to the other side. I know that's not true, but that's the struggle. Um, and you know, to a certain extent we don't help matters because we're typically we're very poker faced uh, during the hearings. Yes. Um, I don't think you get any traction with me because you yell and you scream. I think when you do things like that, um, it's disrespectful to the proceeding, it's disrespectful to opposing counsel, it's disrespectful to the court. Um, you know, I try to uh, de-escalate when those situations present themselves. I'm just, you know, 
I'm usually like this. Yes. Like I am right now all the time. So I, I'll look at them and I'll be like, counsel, you know, I'm going to ask you one more time, please don't raise your voice and just direct your arguments to the court. Because if you're looking at me and you're still yelling, now you're yelling at me and lawyers aren't going to do that. Yeah. But if they're looking at counsel, they're going to get all fired up. They're going to remember those emails. And all I want to know is what happened. And just realize that at the end of the hearing, I don't say, all right, and the court finds that you're the bad guy and you're the good guy. It's just not going to happen. The court's either going to say that the discovery has to be disclosed or that a sanction is appropriate based on either a violation of a court order or a violation of a discovery rule. And that's it. Let me, let me, sure. If you were to speak to a younger lawyer who, uh, feels like uh, they're in that moment where they feel like they're being uh, accused and bullied by a, another counsel and and you were just to coach them through the moment um, in terms of the mindset they can have in terms of any strategies they can have what would you tell them? I would tell you that the more incensed you get the more the court may believe that there's truth to it that's great. Tell yourself that and you'll see how quickly you calm down. Because if you know none of it's true and you just wait and you sit there and you just judge, none of that is true. None of what they've just said is true. Can I just give my version of what occurred? Let me, let me uh, flip gears to a slightly less practical issue, but something that intrigues me. You were partners with Jose Baez for a number of years. He intrigues me. I mean, yeah. literally, the guy comes out of nowhere, not Georgetown Law School. He comes out of a local law school. And then the next thing you know, he is literally a national, I mean, I, I, sensation feels like maybe a slight overstatement, but it felt like that way and sometimes still feels like that way. D tell me a little bit about him. A local lawyer who was the criminal defense attorney for Casey Anthony for a, a number of other very high profile issues. Um, tell me about him. So, you know, I, I always kid Jose. I, I, I always tell him that, you know, if I told people about Jose the person, he would be so mad <laughs> because he's such a humble, mm. nice, low key person. He is loyal to a fault with his friends, with his staff, you know, um, with his clients. Um, he really cares. And that's what strikes me because, you know, you would think that it's about maybe the publicity or the attention. I mean, come on, that dude likes a camera. You would I mean. think so. You would think so. But it's like being on, you know, like for me, it's a character that you or a persona that you invoke in front of a jury. Like, I have to be confident. My client, their reputation, their, the, the success of the merits of the case depends on my ability to convey confidence in our case and in my client's innocence. And I think that's what you see. And, and, I, and I say this because I, I, too, to a certain extent, have this a little bit of a chip on your shoulder where you're underestimated, you're undervalued, you know, and so when you get that opportunity, you want to shine. But once the lights are turned off, the camera's off, that jury's excused, you go back to your regular, normal, everyday person. What, what makes him, 
I mean, he's effective. I, I mean, just if I were to give a word, you know, in terms of these high-profile cases, he's effective. What makes him so effective? So from my, you know, and in, in, in the cases that we've, that we worked together, um, my perception was a uh, just amazing uh, attention to detail. Um, it's these little things like, you know, it's like, it's like watching the first time you see the sixth sense and you get to the end and you're like, oh my God, he was dead the whole time. How did I see that? I didn't even pick up on the fact that, you know, nobody else could see him. I didn't even pick up on the fact that he couldn't, you know, open a doorknob or turn off a TV. And when he gets to the end, he's, he's basically woven this, uh, you know, tapestry together from these, what seemed like innocuous little facts that when they're all pulled together, they make a very clear picture. You think of the high profile cases, but where I've seen him do this most effectively in you know, cases that you've probably never heard of. I, I've had an admiration for his ability to just knowing what's gonna play and what's not gonna play. And it resonates, you know, just knowing what's gonna resonate. And I don't think you can teach that. I don't think that's something, I think that's innate in him. I, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm I look at trial strategy as more of a cerebral exercise, more of a chess game, and our, our personalities really melded well together because um, he had these ideas, and then I tried to dig through the discovery to find how we could kind of put those strategies into play, how they, what they were gonna look like in front of a jury. Um, but sometimes he would just, I mean, there's one where there's, there's a hole in a glove of a forensic investigator that we that he was claiming had tainted evidence in a case. And so, you know, he gives him the piece of evidence, he asks him about it, asks him if he took photographs of the evidence. So he asks him all these questions knowing that he's got this photograph of this particular analyst holding a piece of evidence and noting that there's a hole in his glove. He knows that this picture is there. He asked him all these questions and the last question that he asked him on, on the stand was, would you ever touch any evidence without a glove? And he says, no, never. Never? Never. All right. Sir, aren't you holding evidence right now? And are you wearing a glove? Well, that, that, that but doesn't matter. The effect was there. So now when he actually shows what's meaningful piece of evidence, yes. he's kind of got this That's guy good. hesitation. That's real good. None of us saw it. This is literally at the, the last question of his cross-examination on what was a pretty long trial. You know what I don't want to miss from what you said is just the value of uh, collaboration and having people that think differently working together because I just I think so much of the brilliance of uh, the magic moments in a courtroom come out of collaboration. They, they come out of one person that may think cerebral, one person that thinks instinctual, and then kind of combining those two. And, and the way I would frame it is, well, what's our story and what's their story? Um, so that you can begin to formulate your story and begin attacking their story. Because at the end of the day, I, you know, I find in a group setting, we usually, um, it's not one plus one equals two, it's one plus one equals eight. Right with the right people. And, and I think, you know, the problem with trying to do things on your own um, in trial strategy and preparing for trial and, you know, when you're married to an idea, it's very hard to see the flaws. And people sometimes love their ideas 
or you know, they think something's gonna just play so well and it just falls totally flat. And everybody else in the room's like, yeah, I could have told you that wasn't gonna play well. That's where the collaboration kind of is, is key, is someone who's not attached to a certain theory, a certain idea, a certain outcome, um, you know, who can look at it and see all the things wrong with it and say, the person who's gonna help you the most is a person who thinks you have the worst idea. It requires humility. Right. And it also right. requires also. confidence because I, I, when I find uh, somebody's getting ready for trial and I say, well, give me your opening, they don't want to do the opening because they're worried that it, it will not be good. They're worried we'll attack it when uh, we, we have to take what we have, put it in front of somebody else, even with humility and with confidence that I will, through the process of deconstructing my argument, at the end of the day, I will construct something a lot stronger. Um, yeah, that's good. So I want to I want to flip gears a little bit. I do uh, like to spend a little time kind of shotgunning some practical pieces of advice. Uh, and but before we get there, I, I do want to ask you this: What has been the most surprising thing? Now that you walk around in the hallways and you, you hang out with them, what's, what has most surprised you about judges as a larger group? How much they care, how kind they are, <clears throat> excuse me, how kind they are, how thoughtful they are, how, how much they lose sleep over decisions. Hmm. I re there's a local judge once that a, a friend of mine on the other side and I were trying a case in front of them. And he was so pained over every decision, him and I would, would leave the courtroom and say, we just want to tell him, it's okay. You know, you, you seem like you care more than anyone else. I get that. I really do. How about most surprising thing you've learned about uh, juries? How much they expect the show. And maybe a little bit of disappointment in how it's not that big of a show. Sometimes it is, but there's not the, the fireworks that you'd see on a TV show, but I, I think they expect that, and when there's not, there's a little bit of disappointment. That's good. Most common mistake you see young lawyers making? Ev uh, introduction of evidence and impeachment. The impeachment issues. Is not knowing how to lay the foundation to do a proper impeachment. Correct. Yes. Most common mistake you see seasoned lawyers making? I'm gonna venture to say and only because my colleague pointed it out to me and I was like, absolutely, I totally agree with you. Um, Cross-examination of experts and how much money they make. I think they spend way too much time on it with very little mileage. You are not the first judge that has told me that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, what, what is the most common mistake expert witnesses make? Where you see an expert witness and you think he's tracking or she's tracking and then you see them do something you say, Tch. They lost their credibility there. Showmanship. I think the whole point, you know, and all this cross and all this money that's changing hands is to try to show that an expert's a hired gun, right? You know, to the extent that that's foreboding to even use that, that phrasing in a courtroom, right? And yet some experts will turn and almost you know, with a smile in their eye, answer questions for whoever's retained them, defense or, or plaintiff, you know, like, I'm glad you asked me that question. Like, a, it's like a bad infomercial. Um, <laughs> if they play it straight, I think they're more effective. Yes, yes, definitely. You know? How about uh, clients? 
when a client's on the stand, plaintiff or defendant. So I would say the, the misplaced emotion, you know, without giving away too much, I'll just, there was a case where there was a spouse and they asked the spouse about the injury uh, that, the, that the plaintiff had and basically breaks into tears, talks about how terrible it is when he just grazed that particular body part. She would cry and it killed him because he had caused her pain. And so then on cross, there was a question about her um, depression and they're asking uh, about some depression and straight face without any emotion, he describes how his spouse could, did not want to interact with the children, didn't want to be around the children, no emotion. The jury was like confused by the display of emotion when it came to the injury, which was the topic of the trial. Yet this more emotional, more I, what I would have thought would have affected him more, no emotion, no, no, there was no emoting of yeah, with regards misplaced to, emotion. That's, that's interesting. That's good. And, and to the other extent, you know, plaintiff goes in there and says, you know, I was, I was raised in a way that, you know, men don't cry. And so I just suck it up. And they had a pretty nice result that that plaintiff got a pretty nice result because is the, they can smell when somebody's being inauthentic, when somebody's being that, that false emotion. And I think that's where the clients messed up. If you're not a person that cries, don't try to squeeze out a tear just for the benefit of the jury. They're going to look at what you went through and they're going to make their own evaluation. What's, what's the best writing tip you would give to people to more effectively write? I think for someone like me or another judge who's kind of newer to uh, this, you know, to an area of practice, I would say write as though you're doing an opening and closing argument for a jury. I think... Um, you know, just being direct, being concise. You don't go to a jury and say, in, in, you know, such and such Supreme Court case from 2014, it said, blah, blah, blah. You say, what you, you know, what you're going to hear is, you know, X, Y, and Z. So um, this is why you should find in favor of my client. And I think the case law is there to support it. And Judge, if you want me to discuss the case law, I can do so. Yeah. So, so to me, it's, it's almost... Like the, it's like the brief summary of the argument. Right. To you. Am I hearing that right? Absolutely. And, I, and the summary of the argument is a great way to phrase it. You know, when the Supreme Court puts out their opinions, that's what they do. They do a summary of the opinion. And they tell you, this is everything you need to know. Here it is, one, two, three, four. And then if you want to read, you know, the full length version of it, it's going to follow. What what are you seeing in jury selection? Since you you uh, you enjoy jury selection, and now you get a, a different, unique vantage point, a little higher, uh, looking down at jury selection. What are you seeing to be the most effective uh, lawyering strategies or tools? Less about the specific questions, and more. This is what the best lawyers, kind of the mindset they might have. The uh, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. What are some transferable things you're seeing in jury selection that are effective? So, so the bad things I'm seeing is that our lawyers are going into voir dire with the intentions of striking jurors. That is my goal. I'm going to get four cost challenges and I'm going to have them and I'm going to use them. But it's, we're so quick and it almost creates like an adversarial 
uh, rapport between the juror and the attorney. Like, why are you trying to get rid of me? You know, what, what did I do to you? Why don't you like me? Everybody wants to be liked. Um, it just always seems like the lawyers who are not effective are trying to get rid of people before they know who they are and whether it's going to be a favorable juror or not. And the jurors, I mean, I don't know if it's subconscious or if it's they're aware of it, but it seems like they recoil when other questions are asked that are more substantive. So if you just are constantly asking someone, well, you don't like this, you don't like, you know, you don't like lawyers who do this, or you don't like people who sue, or you don't like police officers, and you're not just asking them general questions about what, are, you know, their opinions on fairness, their opinions on the legal system, their opinions on the burdens of proof and what they feel is an appropriate, you know, or a reasonable doubt or, or what they believe is uh, a reasonable injury or whether they believe people should be compensated for their injuries. You know, you kind of run the gamut, but you want to find out what their opinions are before you start looking for reasons to knock them out. That's good. That's so, good. That's what I say is the most effective when they go in there and they're conversational and they're actually trying to find out who these people are. The jurors like it. Uh, and I, I think that they get the most mileage out of their four calls because the jurors open up and they tell them everything they need to know if they wanted to get rid of them. The, the belief amongst uh, many trial lawyers is that uh, either after jury selection uh, or after opening statement, for all intents and purposes, the case is basically over. Not literally, but that, that in some ways the die is cast. If you've got a good jury and, and the story comes in well, that at the end of opening statement, that, that generally the die is cast. From your vantage point, watching the trials through fruition, is that a modern myth or is there some truth there? I think it's totally a modern myth. I think it's 100% a modern myth. I think what you accomplish at jury selection is to an extent weaving your theory of your case through your voir dire because you're highlighting to them what you think is gonna be an important point and what you think is not an important point. I'm trying to throw my worst facts out at the jury and find out who's on board with my guy and who totally hates my guy. You know, those are kind of the three categories that you're left with. Um, and so for the most part, t totally hate your guy, you're gonna get rid of him. Totally love your guy, the other side's gonna get rid of him. So who you're left with is kind of somebody in the middle. So as long as you've kind of touched upon these issues where they're not a big surprise and they're not gonna be like, oh, if I had known that, I couldn't be on this jury. So you you've kind of know who you like and who likes you. Um, then you're left with kind of people who are in the middle and then the merits of your case are gonna carry that. There's a, there's a, a law review article, um, and I think Iowa, it was like the Iowa, uh, Iowa Law Review um, published it, and I was reading it because it was uh, just popped up on a on a issue that I was researching, and they talk about these marginal differences in verdicts, where you know the own where basically you took blind samples of people who did active jury selection with peremptories and active jury selection without peremptories. So you got to do all your for cause. No, no recognizable difference between the outcomes. So you, for all we think we can really figure out these people are like, oh, you know, they watch Fox News, I want them, or they watch CNN, I want them. At the end of the day, 
you know, it's the for cause that's really going to get you. Leaving people who should be gone for a cause is what's going to change your verdict. You can are kind of stuck with people who are just pretty middle of the road, and that's usually who you're left with. Because the people who, you know, unless you completely fall asleep at the wheel and somebody's like, I don't believe any plaintiff, and you're like, huh, what? Oh, yeah, he's fine. Then, you know, you're gonna find you're gonna find yourself in trouble. You you seem to me to uh, be intense, but also peaceful. Like you like you seem intense and passionate about what you do, but you also don't you don't strike me as somebody who is stressed out. Um, the the lawyers that you see and interact with, having been in the community for uh, a long time. Um, the lawyers that you look at and you say, okay, they're passionate about what they do, they're committed to what they do, but they also have a life and they, 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 they don't walk around stress. What are some threads that you see of the people that seem satisfied, um, peaceful, and passionate? I would say they have good perspective. I mean, I think in the grand scheme of things, a person who, have, who has good perspective, maybe somebody who's dealt with a little adversity, somebody who's had some, you know, major life experiences, whether it's, you know, health concerns or close relative health concerns, has great perspective of where this fits in in the greater scheme of life. And I think the people who go in there understand that it's an argument, that it's a legal one, and the connection to their happiness, their, their, you know, success isn't necessarily tied to winning or losing that argument. I think the attorneys who don't have perspective live and die by every argument and every motion that they file and every appearance that they have in court. I think that's, I think that's the big distinction is just, you know, they're, they're, your case is important. They're also more important things. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a very big believer in we all deserve vacations. I mean, as a private practice, as a private practitioner, I wish that I had some. I can tell you that for six years, I think my honeymoon was the only vacation that I took. But even you know, when I could, I would try to get away for a short weekends and and try to just kind of the the, the adversity uh, issue. And I, I get that when somebody's been through. Uh, something that's a major tragedy or a major adversity. I think it really does help in perspective. Um, I also think we learn often from our failure. Uh, the lowest moments are moments that either take us out or they help project us up. Um, if you'd be willing to share, um, what has been the, the biggest failure and failure doesn't necessarily have to be you caused it or adversity that you've experienced and how did you walk through it? So, I mean, I think failure wise, uh, my first uh, partnership, the first time I went on my own, we were doing so well. And, you know, there was a rift in the partnership, um, you know, economy wasn't great and we grew too fast too soon. And so, I mean, it wasn't catastrophic, but it created a riff because at that point you're looking at, you know, what everybody's contributing and you start to kind of, you know, when, when everything's going great, 
uh, everybody's happy and everybody wants yes. to share in the good yes. times when things slow down and things are tight and you really are like, no, like we, now we need to like buckle down and people are just not willing to make sacrifices. They, you know, you kind of see the true colors. You question your ability to judge character and you question your ability to know that you're surrounding yourself with the right people. And so, um, you know, I would say that that getting through that period of time, like just learning that lesson was big for me just from a, a growing standpoint. And, and what did you learn that moving forward changed how you practiced or acted or surrounded yourself with? I, I would have to say, trust your instincts, how you are, and, and don't let somebody just convince you that that you're wrong about that. I, I don't know how to explain it. I don't want to get too specific, but you know, just trust that, you know, if you've gotten if you've been successful, don't don't stop doing what's been working for you. Don't get comfortable. Don't rest on your laurels. Don't think you've made it. Don't think you've crossed the finish line because it's a very long race. You know, just when you think you've got the game figured out, things change. So I think that that, that taught me not to be so complacent and so trusting um, to kind of make sure that you're involved in every aspect of your practice or your cases so that you know you keep your finger on the pulse. You know where things are going. For that matter, your life. Right. That's good. Let me ask you uh, a question I've tried to ask most people, and it is if you were to speak to a group of lawyers, 25 years to 35 years are in the, the early seasons of their practice and you could give them some advice, things that um, you would like to have been spoken into you back when you were that age, the, some wisdom that you would impart, what would you say? You don't know anything. You're learning. Don't be set. Don't say I always or I never. Um, be open, be observant. You really don't know anything. And so be passionate, but be practical. You know, it's good to have a plan, but not one that's so rigid that there's no room to change course. Don't, don't just dig yourself a deep hole. And I think when you say, I always and I never, you tell a lot of people this, it makes it very hard for you to get out, you know, among your peers, among friends, among family. You know, I just think if you're open and honest and just are willing to say, I don't know, I'm not sure, um, you're gonna save yourself a lot of guilt and kind of a self-defeating attitude. Yeah, what I'm hearing is uh, don't dig the, the ruts of your path too deep because you don't know exactly what's ahead. Yeah. So be open to change course and know you don't know what you don't know. Right, and, and be willing to learn. I mean, that, that's the big thing is, you know, um, you don't need to touch the stove to know that it's hot. Learn from other people's mistakes. Listen to people who've been there. Some of the younger people who, who engage, and maybe it's just, you know, maybe that's the kind of people that um, I've just had the, the good fortune of interacting with, but they're just like, I'm concerned, you know, about this or about that. I'm like, yeah, you know, that's a good point. And, and they're, they're very receptive and open to criticism. It's not really criticism, it's, it's advice, but sometimes it's received as criticism. Yes. So don't, I guess, with, you know, for a younger person, don't think that advice is necessarily a criticism. It's more of a don't make the mistakes that I've made. 
Yes, that's good. That's real good. Let's take a second group, a um, little bit older. They've established themselves at some level, but they're not at the end of their career. They still have uh, plenty of seasons ahead. If you were to give some advice, and I would kind of put you in that category, you would be someone where you're established and you're, you've accomplished a lot, but you still have a lot of years ahead of you. Giving advice to lawyers in that season, what would you tell them? And this is advice that I'm taking myself. So yes. I will tell you, and I feel like it served me re really well, is surround yourself with people who are positive influences on you. People who motivate you, people who inspire you, people that you respect, people that respect you. That's so good. I think that's what keeps you going when you, you know, and we were talking earlier with Judge Weiss, um, we have such a good group here. It makes me want to come to work. It makes me want to learn stuff so I can share it with them. I, I feel like the feeling's mutual. They're, they always want to engage with me about things that they've just read or, you know, uh, issues that they've had. It's, it's, I, it keeps you going. It keeps you in love with what you're doing because, you know, it's, it's cool. It's interesting. We're all engaged in it. So that's, that would be my advice is it's going to keep you motivated. If, if, if the people around you are energized, it's going to energize you and you vice versa can energize them. That's, that's fantastic. They say that we're at some level, what goes on in our head is, is so shaped by the people that are around us. And what I find is uh, there's a lot of negativity in the world. There's just a lot of cynicism and, uh, and it's, it's clouded in humor oftentimes, but it's ultimately, it's ultimately not a positive outlook on the future. And, and, uh, the part that sometimes I, I I'm sad for, for my peer group is people who are surrounded by people that are not giving them what you said, positive inspiration, encouragement, but they just stay there. And, and they live in that same place. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll make it as a side note, you know, I've never liked lawyer jokes. I, I mean, yes. I never thought they were funny. This is your profession. This is what you have basically committed to doing for the rest of your life. And you denigrate your profession by making jokes about it. I, I just never understood that. You don't go around seeing doctors making doctor jokes or you know any other profession that has you know accountants making accounting jokes i just never understood that but i, I feel like maybe the rationale is you know oh we'll just keep it light we don't want to take ourselves too seriously but this is a profession and i think you know if you take pride in your profession then you know, you're, you're only going to be taken as seriously as you take yourself. I'm like, I don't like those jokes. I don't either. Yeah, I, I don't I, either. I don't, I don't, that's I don't, an aside, I, and I don't yeah. even like them in my presence. And I'll typically yeah. try to say something light to try to deflect it. But I let the people know, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fan of, of that. If you had a magic wand and you could wave that magic wand and you could fix uh, one issue in the world, and it could be any issue in the world, what issue would you, would you wave it and fix? You know, <laughs> that there's, especially in the, in the um, current social climate, I just wish that people would not ascribe to this tribalistic mentality. You know, I, you know like we were talking about before with, uh, you know, having to, to cross-examine and question police officers, it's just, you know, this idea that you can generalize or label people. 
I think if we just took the time to really treat people as individuals and really engage with people one-on-one, -on -one, um, it would be totally different. Because you would never, if you know someone you know, of a particular belief or a particular group or whatever, you know, the common thing is, oh yeah, but not that person. It's like, no, but that's not the way it works. You can't generalize and then say, oh, but it doesn't apply to one person. It's like, just don't generalize. So I, I guess that would be my thing is just, you know, all, all, all this, you know, picking teams, if we could just get away from that, that would be my magic wand. Just like treat, follow the golden rule. Everybody has to follow the golden rule. Just treat everybody like you want to be treated. And you'd see things would be, we'd live in a much better society. Yeah, that's great. That's good. Um, what are you most hopeful about in life right now? My kids. I mean, you know, I, I've got two boys and, you know, I just, all my, all my uh, worries are about the world that they're going to grow up in and, you know, and, and what kind of people they're going to be. Um, but I see so much character. Um, you know, my, my little one is really little, but I already see his little personality popping out. So when I see that, I know, I know we're in good hands. And, and, you know, even with talking to some of, you know, the youth and, you know, even some of the younger lawyers, there's just a very good aura. It, you know, there's a, there's a thoughtfulness, I think that's very prevalent, but, uh, I think the, the younger generation, you know, makes me very hopeful. So that it gives me a lot of hope um, just seeing that in their, their just general activism, their willingness yes. to be outspoken, yes. they speak their mind. Um, I think, you know, in, in my peer group, it was more like, you, you know, you, you had to strive. And right. You had to like, these are the boxes we got to check. We got to check this. We got to then do this, then do that. And it seems like they're just more like, why are we doing this? And, you know, just more willing to question norms that we're just, you know, were accepted by like me and my peer group. We just accepted that that was the way things were. That's, that's an, I agree. I get excited about uh, a generation of world changers coming up. So yeah. that's good stuff. Uh, Judge, I can't tell you what a treat it's been and a pleasure talking to you. I, uh, I do want to ask you this before we leave. If you were not a lawyer, okay, what would your dream job be? You know, I would, I, I don't know. I, I think I'd be like coaching some sport or a I, You know what? I'd be a te I'd be probably be a high school teacher. I, you know, I just, I like interacting with younger people. I like, um, you know, being able to be a source of, of wisdom. Um, I, you know, I, it's having sat in the juvenile division in Osceola County kind of gave me some perspective, but I feel like I really, you know, could speak to these kids um, and treat them um, with a certain amount of respect and dignity, even though I think maybe it was the first time that they were receiving that sort of engagement. I think usually they're being talked down to. Um, so, you know, I, I think, I mean, I kind of feel like I'd be like a teacher in an inner city, you know, just trying to connect, trying to have a positive influence. I think that's probably... My wife always says, like, you're going to end up teaching, you know, at some point in your career. You just, you just can't help yourself, you know. And so I think that's probably what I would do. I bet you'd be very good. Well, I appreciate your time. I wish you the best. Thank you for serving. And uh, I'll look forward to connecting again. All right. Sounds good. Thank you.